0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese, and I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Lisa Herzog. Lisa is professor of political philosophy at the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Groningen. She works at the intersections of political philosophy, economics and moral philosophy. She has a new book. It's just out with Oxford University Press. It's titled Citizen Knowledge, Markets, Experts and the Infrastructure of Democracy. For better or worse, democracy and epistemology, the theory of knowledge, are intertwined. For one thing, politics is partly a matter of gathering, assessing and applying information. And this can be done responsibly or incompetently. Now, at least since Plato, many will recognize, a leading critique of democracy has focused on the ignorance of ordinary citizens. Historically, this kind of critique has supplied the basis for a range of non-democratic, authoritarian, aristocratic proposals. Yet it's also worked in the background of a range of views within democratic theory. Among these, some people have, rely, have promoted views that rely on an understanding of markets as mechanisms suf- uh, that are sufficient for sharing and distributing information. These kinds of views have been particularly influential in the 20th century. But as Lisa Herzog argues in her new book, these ha- 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 there are hazards, rather, to market-based thinking about democracy, In Citizen Knowledge, Herzog explores three conceptually distinct sites where democracy interfaces with epistemology. Markets, expert communities, and open public deliberation. The result she promotes is an integrated political epistemology for a democratic society. Now, as usual, there's a whole lot to talk about, um, but also as usual, we'll begin with our guest, Hello, Lisa. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, you know, we start these interviews with um, uh, uh, inviting the guests to share uh,
1: something about themselves. Uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, so I grew up in Germany um, and actually at the border of what was formerly the Iron Curtain, so in the east of Germany. Um, facing what was then czechoslovakia so i got interested in different economic and political systems from a very young age i then studied economics and philosophy which were really these two worlds and in a way you could say my academic career since then has been trying to think through the connections between philosophical questions um specifically in political philosophy and the economic institutions and economic practices that we live with. Um, And uh, that has led me through different uh, projects. One was, for example, about the intellectual history on markets, what are they actually, how do we imagine them? Um, Then I've also worked specifically on financial markets with the 2008 financial crisis um, being a bit of a (laughs) motivation to really look into this in more detail. Um, And then also um, organizations and the way in which large-scale corporations, but also public administrations have an impact on individuals as moral agents. And then in in recent years, I got very interested in this emerging new field that goes by the name of political epistemology, where, as you said, um, questions of politics and of knowledge and their intersection are being analyzed, although... I mean, mean, there is this new label, but these questions are, of course, much older. Um, And with my specific background, um, having studied economics and philosophy, I got very fascinated by the way in which certain economic ideas about knowledge have also had an impact on politics, namely this idea that markets have these beneficial features as kind of epistemic machines. And so... I got really interested in asking questions around this intersection, but not only looking at it as the intersection between certain forms of knowledge and politics, but bringing in this third dimension of the market. Because we live in societies in which markets or capitalist institutions are just incredibly important. And so my sense was, well, we need to think about all these things together. And then this all becomes very complicated, of course. And I read around in lots of different academic fields. But um, finally, now, uh, the book is out. And I'm now, yeah, I continue to think about questions about democracy and and the economy um, for which writing this book has been quite an, an, yeah, for me, a really interesting journey of trying to understand how all these different academic discourses can be brought together.
0: Well, that's wonderful. And, you know, I will say um, to those who are listening, you know, one of the refreshing things I found about the book um, was how sort of scopic it was. It sort of tried to bring um, considerations from a range of um, sort of areas and sort of regions and broadly speaking now political and social theory together um you know i think our field in political philosophy perhaps democratic theory as it's practiced among philosophers tends to you know be very tightly focused on some particular um issue legitimacy authority deliberation uh, but this book has got a a, a much broader scope that uh, i have to say uh is very welcome uh at least uh at least to this reader um so uh, let's let's talk about the book um, it, it, and may, maybe it'll help to begin with uh, with, with some of the background. Um, so citizen knowledge takes for granted the normative justification for democracy um, and it adopts an a, an orientation or it, it begins from and then develops an orientation that you call democratic uh, institutionalism. Can you tell us a little bit about that that approach?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So as background, I think it's probably helpful to say that some theorists have talked about this issue of democracy and knowledge by asking a very fundamental question of whether we can or should justify democracy by saying that it has certain positive features when it comes to dealing with knowledge. This is a very old argument that you find already in Aristotle when he talks about the knowledge of the many that can be brought together through democratic institutions. And I think there are many interesting things to be said about these arguments, but they also make uh, democracy very vulnerable, namely to the possibility that it might be better epistemic processes or epistemic institutions that are not democratic. And if your only reason for uh, supporting democracy is that it has these positive epistemic features and a better alternative comes along, then you have to go for this better alternative. And that's not what I wanted to do. So I think democracy as a normative project that starts from the equality of all citizens who govern their institutions together That normative project has far broader normative roots, and there are more arguments that speak in its favor than just that it might potentially also have um, positive epistemic features. And so that's what I take for given. But then there's still a question about, well, but how good can democracies be when it comes to dealing with knowledge? And that's where this approach that I call democratic institutionalism comes in, namely to ask, well, what ways of institutionalizing this democratic project actually work better or worse in certain situations or maybe also for certain subfields of society? You know, how, how do you democratize um, politics in the sense of uh, making laws? How do we democratize maybe the economy? That's another project of mine. So um, the question is, is in, 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 in the book is far more, how do we build the kinds of institutions and social practices um, through which democratic principles, democratic ideals can be realized. And what do these democratic institutions then have to do with knowledge and different forms of knowledge and so on. That's
0: great. Um, so let's, let's then again, by way of sort of stage setting more or less um, uh, now a big qu- a sort of question about the big picture. Um, Can you lay out for us sort of the contours of of the sort of the problem that's being addressed here? Um, You're you're concerned in the book with a family. um, They are related. A family of issues um, that have beset uh, sort of democratic societies with capitalist economies. um, And those problems particularly are problems that have to do with. Uh, the relation between sort of politics and knowledge. Um, uh, Can you fill in that part of of the framework uh, against which the book proceeds?
1: Yes, sure. Um, So there is a certain picture of democratic politics, which I don't know whether anyone still holds this, but which was sort of prevalent maybe until 10 years ago or so, I don't know exactly where um, politics meant that people had to find compromises and solutions to disagreements of interests and disagreements of values but they would sort of agree on what the facts are and and you sort of have this common understanding of the facts um and then you know employers have different interests and employees and you need to find a way of dealing with these uh, conflicts of interest or different groups in society have different values about um, how much redistribution you should have or about how to seriously take environmental issues. And then those are these value questions and that's what politics needs to deal with. But the facts are sort of already there. And this has maybe never been true, but it's definitely not been true for the last couple of years where a lot of issues that we would call political, turn actually around the facts themselves. So the facts themselves became politicized. And many forms of how we generate knowledge became, or how we generate or transmit knowledge also became politicized. So to to just give one example um, that I was really sort of, (laughs) that hit me in the the stomach when I read this about this first, Um, there is um, a lot of historical research on how the tobacco industry starting in the 1940s and 50s, um, distorted the production of knowledge about the harmfulness of smoking. Why? Well, because they had an economic interest in continuing to to make profits by selling tobacco products. And if people understand how harmful smoking and also secondary smoking is, then first they may not buy these products anymore, but also politics may come in with public health considerations and might actually ban smoking or may at least um, put uh, certain controls on it and so on. And so what they did, and this this is uh, very thoroughly um, historically established by, by various scholars, they manipulated the way in which this knowledge was generated by experts and how it reached the general public and political discourse. So, for example, they would systematically sponsor those researchers that had alternative theories about lung cancer, so lung cancer not being caused by smoking, but by all kinds of other causes, or they would um, always um, throw doubt on certain studies that did show um, a connection between smoking and harmful health outcomes. And of course, science actually always proceeds without playing a very important role. Because if you don't doubt uh, the results of certain studies, you cannot make them really solid by by really checking all of the possibilities, um, making sure you haven't overlooked anything. That's why we have peer review and the scientific process and so on. So in a way, uh, the tobacco industry used this very crucial element of the scientific process against the creation and against the dissemination of knowledge about the harmfulness of smoking and this delayed um uh regulation uh for for decades and there's are still from from what i understand ongoing lawsuits about all the you know the the different responsibilities that different uh companies had in this so this for me was a very interesting phenomenon um of how democratic politics gets into trouble when knowledge is contested and when certain groups in society, in this case, the tobacco industry, with deep pockets can uh, influence the, these processes. And, and by the way, this this tobacco playbook, as it has now been called, has also been used by other industries, including the oil and gas industry, in order to uh, disrupt uh, the public dissemination of knowledge about climate change. And so there is, there's a lot going on at this interface between... Market actors, democratic rule setting, and the kind of knowledge that is needed in order to allow democratic politics to, 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 to do the things it's supposed to do, namely to, to make laws that serve the public good in some way, that find compromises between different groups and so on. That doesn't work if certain epistemic processes are not functioning well.
0: Right. And, uh, you know, when I was reading the, um, the discussion or sort of early in the book, um, uh, uh, particularly about this this uh, example, uh, the tobacco example, you know, I, I, I kind of felt nostalgic for, you know, in a way how much simpler the epistemic issues were in the uh, uh, you know, 50 years ago, sort of before the internet, before there were uh, very um easily accessible channels by which um sort of uh, those who have an interest in stoking uh epistemically derelict forms of doubt and skepticism among a population <laughs> uh, you know c- can can sort of access large numbers of people very very easily in ways that um you know, I suspect that if the tobacco industry 50 and 60 years ago had access to, it would have been much more difficult, even much more difficult than it was to suppress the the information that they needed to suppress. Does that strike right. you as right?
1: Um, I I, I mean, it's, it's really an interesting question how much better or worse things are. I mean, a natural tendency that you often hear is that people think, oh, it's all gotten so much worse because of the Internet. Um, and... I'm actually not sure. I mean, there are many things that are epistemically dysfunctional on how social media currently work and and and, and how different voices get attention on the Internet and so on. But it's really interesting that you say um, it seemed so simple at the time. Yes and no, because there was also so much that uh, the general public just didn't know at the time. Right. And I think we are in a process of understanding many of these things much better and so we see what a disaster these things can be, but we have not yet come up with new solutions. And of course, the new solutions that we need need to be made for today's age with the Internet, with social media, also with their potential benefits in terms of finding out things, disseminating other stories and so on. Uh, and not for the age of, of when when the tobacco strategy started, but... Um, I'm I, I'm not sure whether nostalgia is actually <laughs> you know called for here because maybe it was just as bad, but the general public just had no idea and was maybe less enlightened about how all these power uh, placements <laughs> were being played behind closed doors. Uh, maybe. Uh, uh...
0: Maybe, maybe I'm just um, jaded from uh, you know the the last couple of years in that in my country. <laughs>
1: Where, well, I, I really don't know <laughs> the problems of what's going on today, but let, let, let me add one one thing here. So, sure, I mean, I do think that what's going on in the internet is really important, and there is a lot that a lot of research that gets done on this, and and that's great and very important. i made a pretty early decision in uh, thinking about this book project that this wouldn't be my main focus, because I think to a certain extent, the problems run even deeper because, you know, if we had a really well-functioning democracy in, I mean, in, in many countries, and they democracy are not functioning very well, then we could regulate the internet very differently and we could make it much more functional for democracy. But the reason that this is not happening uh, is exactly that we already have this imbalance between economic actors and the democratic public, and and the processes are already distorted. And so I'm I'm trying to steer away a little bit from this this focus on what's happening on social media, what's happening through online mis- misinformation, all these things. Not because they're not important, but because I think there is an underlying sort of political economy layer to the problem that also needs to be taken into account. And that's more what my book focuses on.
0: That's fabulous. That's fabulous. Um, it's great. So um, uh, w- w- we'll talk in a minute about the element of your argument that has to do with the ways in which sort of the, the democratic ecosystem is already structured uh, to advantage, uh, you know, certain kinds of actors and certain ways of understanding the kind of knowledge of, uh, um, uh, that democratic uh, societies need, but before we get to that, I want to ask the sort of the the background philosophical question, which you you address in an early chapter, um, uh, namely w- w- what we're talking about uh, in this context uh, w- when we w- when we use the word knowledge. Um, So a lot of us, a lot of contemporary democratic theorists, maybe this has become a a prevailing view among uh, philosophers, at least working in democratic theory, um, think that democracy is at least in some measure an epistemic proposal. Um, And that always sort of just raises the question of what knowledge is. Um, And I take it that um, the challenge that's embedded within that question, what do you mean by knowledge, um, is to uh, identify, you know, a conception of, you know, the kind of knowledge that is relevant for democratic politics um, in a way that doesn't instantly sort of invite uh, a kind of challenge, uh, sort of that we get in Plato, uh, kind of ep- epistocratic, to use the David Estlund term, challenge. Right? If knowledge is what's important in democracy, why aren't experts in charge? Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about how you understand knowledge in a way um, that might not so quickly invite that uh, that 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 epistocratic or platonic challenge?
1: Yes, yeah. that's something I've struggled with a lot when thinking about this project because there are, of course endless discussions among philosophers that try to come up with the best possible definition of knowledge and those discussions discussions will not end uh, anytime soon from what i understand <laughs> um, because there will always be a new <laughs> challenge uh, new counter examples and so, so so i i came to the point where i thought okay i cannot wait for theoretical philosophers to sort out what knowledge is and then give me this nice sort of package definition and then i can run with this i have to be a bit more pragmatic here and i mean i guess i also have certain pragmatic uh theoretical uh background assumptions um so i understand knowledge in a, in a pretty broad sense as our connection to the world out there um that helps us navigate our shared reality and shared is important here um, knowledge is almost always a, a social entity. We don't know things just on our own. We know them because we're part of communities. And in these communities, we we learn um what the world is like, we acquire a certain language, we um we acquire a certain, yeah, a certain worldview, certain background assumptions. And our sense impressions of what we see when we look at the world are always already shaped by our membership in these different communities. But that doesn't mean that you collapse into some kind of relativism, because um, that reality out there is actually quite good at pushing back at us when we get it wrong. So if you uh, to take a very, um, you know, a simple example, if, if, if you if your knowledge about the The train times is wrong, and then then you'll just miss the train. Or if you're, if you if you don't understand which medicine works uh, for which illnesses, then your health is uh, at risk. So, and and what's interesting is that in everyday life, we use the term knowledge without lots of problems. I mean, sometimes you have boundary cases. You know, could I call this knowledge, or is it more? You know, a, a strong belief backed up by certain forms of evidence, but it's not a real challenge as long as it's just our everyday life and sort of small-scale interaction. What's interesting is that in democratic life, we often, um, as citizens, we have to understand things, or you know, at least understand sort of, sort of get second-hand knowledge about certain things, where we don't have that immediate feedback. So if we get wrong what corona is it doesn't immediately hit us back it may hit us bit may hit us back in, in very bad ways a bit later on it may even be deadly but it's not that kind of immediate feedback that um that that you get when you, for example you have some kind of um yeah yes, wrong sense impression and or some some kind of delusion and then you actually walk there and you see oh my god this this is it was just my brain making up funny things that's not what happens when you have wrong beliefs about um the forms of knowledge that we need for politics and that's also why it has become possible um for for people to live in what we now call their own bubbles where they refuse to believe certain things because it doesn't have an immediate impact on on, on their everyday lives and they can afford as it were to to stick to, to factually wrong beliefs because reality doesn't immediately hit back maybe it doesn't long run and because democracy is is, is ultimately about the whole of society and also uh, meant to deal with the long-term stability of our political institutions democracy as a whole can't afford to Rely on on wrong beliefs. Um, it then reality will indeed hit back, and I mean, climate change is one of these cases where this is now happening, and uh, we all see that. You know, we cannot deny this because it, it's happening. It's we are experiencing all the the symptoms, and we really need to take it seriously.
0: That seems right, you know. Um, and again, it, just to pick up on the uh, the uh, the coronavirus case. Um, one one thing that I was thinking about uh, in in reading the, the, the your discussion about what you mean by knowledge and and the kind of knowledge that we need for democratic politics um, is that um, you know it occurred to me that uh, at least in the United States um, maybe there is something to be said for a more uh, certainly some maybe we don't maybe maybe we don't need to go back to the Gettier problem and try to educate the public about all the counterexample stuff but um you know the distinction the sort of humdrum distinction between sort of you know the truth of a belief and the justification you might have for holding it um which is you know first week of an epistemology class in philosophy you know seems to be lost on um on the citizenry in a certain way, I was just looking last week at a uh, a, a criticism of the uh, well, what was alleged to be a criticism of the country, of, particularly of the, uh, the the our health officials in the United States, particularly Anthony Fauci's response to the coronavirus, um, pointing out all these statements that he made at various parts of the pandemic that turned out to have been false or not the entire truth, without any indication that epistemic evaluation is sometimes really a matter of you know looking at what the best evidence at the time something was said warranted this (laughs) rather than just sort of correctness or incorrectness um does that seem right to you that sort of there's a uh there's a need to sort of think also not only in terms of the correctness of a belief but in the um in the way in which beliefs can be better or 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 less responsive to the state of the the evidence at hand
1: yeah absolutely and that, i mean this, this is a very nice example because it shows how evidence builds up over time and at a certain point in time you may think that the preponderance of evidence points in a certain direction and later evidence later experiments studies whatever it is may then show us this was actually the wrong direction. So it's never a kind of black and white picture where something is only wrong or only false. There there are all these shades in between. And the the interesting thing about the corona crisis was that we had to uh, have public policy responses to a phenomenon that was still very much under investigation. Right. And Fortunately, many other policy areas, we are we have a different temporal dynamic in the sense that the evidence has already built up to a point where we can really say with a lot of confidence, look, this is the correct picture of reality. And I think a, a particularly important um, way in which we can get to this confidence is when we have different methodologies, different types of perspectives confirming. A certain picture and for climate change that's that's obviously the case where you have very different types of you know studying marine biology or uh ice from uh, thousands of years ago and i mean there are all these different methodologies and they build up to a picture that is internally coherent and and then we can really say okay we are there we can act on this and in the corona case politicians had to act at points in time where things were still very much shifting, and I think one of the challenges of modern democracies is that citizens um, need to get a better understanding of how these processes function. I think experts also need to educate them better about these processes, not only about specific bits and pieces of evidence, as it were, but also about, okay, how do these things hang together? What's the process in which knowledge gets generated? Because then you get a better understanding of, What you can say at particular points in time and also um, in what cases, you know, maybe sometimes people are to be blamed for not dealing correctly with certain states of evidence. But often, you know, even when you act in good faith, you may make mistakes. And that's something that democratic systems need to be able to deal with because it will always happen again. We cannot avoid these problems because of the temporal dynamic of how knowledge builds up.
0: Excellent, excellent. So, um, so the, the the central thesis of citizen knowledge, um, it, or the central task, I might want to say, um, is to delineate and explore three different, interlocking in some ways, but conceptually distinct at least, mechanisms for managing and d- disseminating and building knowledge in a complex democratic society, uh, specifically in markets, uh, expert communities and, um, public deliberation. Now the thesis is that in a well-functioning democracy, we need all three of these systems, these epistemic systems to work well. Um, but you the critical edge of your argument is that, uh, we need to guard against a tendency to allow, um, uh, w- w- one of these sort of uh, one of these bits of architecture to dominate uh, the others, and um, uh, w- w- one uh, one way in which this uh, can happen, and one way in which it does happen, is we see sort of uh, market thinking kind of infiltrating uh, uh, our our um, our political consideration of of issues and questions and bits of knowledge that really should be governed um, by means of, um, uh, other uh the, the uh, one of the other two mechanisms so um assuming that's the right picture correct me if I'm wrong um can we can we start with markets C- can you tell us a little bit about the role of markets in a healthy democracy vis-a-vis its epistemic uh uh um, ecosystem yes
1: thank you so actually if you really pushed me how necessary markets are um what I would say is they are maybe the least necessary of these three <laughs> mechanisms so maybe there could be a future society where we wouldn't need them but where we currently are they can still be a useful institutional solution to certain problems now the one key argument that connects markets and knowledge and um, this is an old story you can find uh, it already a little bit in Adam Smith but then the the, the author who really pushed this line uh, very much was was Friedrich August von Hayek what he argued was that markets are these machines for dealing with decentralized knowledge. So you may have a certain preference for a certain type of coffee and there are coffee producers out there who know what the costs of production for certain types of coffee are, but how are you you going to meet each other? And how are you going to know whether you can actually afford this type of coffee or whether, you know, maybe... You want to buy something else because actually it's not worth it. So there are all these decentralized preferences that consumers have and only they know about them. And there is all this knowledge about production, new technologies, new materials, but also shifting prices of raw materials and so on. And what Hayek argued was that it's impossible for a centralized planner. And I mean, he was writing this when the Soviet Union was the Big systems competitor. So he was thinking of uh, Soviet planners really Mm. doing this by five year plans and so on. A a planner cannot really gather all this knowledge. And moreover, this knowledge changes all the time because, you know, there might be a bad harvest somewhere and then certain raw materials are actually scarcer and then, you know, or your preferences for a different type of coffee may change, whatever. Um, So it's constantly shifting. And so Hayek argued that. Market prices are these fantastic tools for bringing these different forms of knowledge together and allowing people to adjust their behavior to the overall situation. And then all the agents are adjusting their knowledge. And so the system is constantly sort of optimizing uh, efficiency um, with people looking for new opportunities or shifting their bargaining power elsewhere or whatever. And 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 what's keeping it together, what's allowing the coordination are the decentralized market prices. And I think this idea has been hugely powerful, also on the political left, because it's this idea that you can have freedom and efficiency at the same time, because the market allows for decentralized decision making and leads to efficient outcomes. So all, all good things going together, which sure. you know may make it sound as if it's too good to be true. Now, what I argue is that this issue has been vastly exaggerated because many real life markets just don't fit this picture very well. And there are many forms of knowledge in society that cannot be processed by market prices in in this decentralized way. And my argument is that you actually need to turn the logic of justification around. If you want to have markets that have these positive epistemic features. You need to actually regulate them really well. You don't get this by just letting them run with maximum um, deregulation, the free market, as it's then sometimes described as if this could ever exist, because markets are always part of institutions that are set by human beings. So there's no such thing as a natural market. They are always social structures. But if you want them to be epistemically functional, you need to, for example, prevent externalities. So externalities and in, in sort of standard economic language are costs or benefits that are not borne by the parties involved in an exchange. So if you buy coffee from the coffee producer, there might be costs to the local community. And because of how the property rights are allocated, um, th- these, these costs are not borne by the producer. And so the producer would also not pass them on to you as the Uh, consumer. And so when you have externalities, you get a distorted picture and the information that's embodied in the prices is incomplete and therefore wrong. And um, there are many other ways in which um, real markets can also deviate from, from this model. Also, real people are often not that rational and not that well informed. So there are all kinds of psychological mechanisms coming in. So if a society decides we want to use markets as a mechanism for the allocation of certain goods and services, then it needs to watch very carefully where this might go wrong and where it might lead to epistemically dysfunctional outcomes because the markets haven't been properly regulated.
0: Fantastic. Um, so let's then uh, uh, turn to this other sort of, we might say, site, I guess, of um, necessary epistemic activity, uh, which is the expert communities. And you propose a partnership model for understanding the role of experts uh, in a democratic society. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yes, uh, sure. Um, so it's actually interesting. Hayek starts this, this famous article about the use of knowledge in society, as he called it, by saying, oh, people overestimate The importance of scientific knowledge compared to that local knowledge that he then focuses on, but already shows that his argument is not about scientific knowledge. It's it's about local knowledge. Um, But of course, in modern societies, we have all kinds of forms of knowledge. And I, I use the term expert knowledge in a very broad sense here that lay people cannot just acquire by googling around for 10 minutes or having a short conversation with someone who knows a little bit more but that really take years of well immersion in a certain social context or training you need to study very hard you need to really become part of an epistemic community to be able to contribute to that kind of knowledge so that's what i mean by by expert knowledge and scientific knowledge is a kind of paradigm example But indigenous knowledge or certain forms of local community-based knowledges can also be expert knowledge in the sense that, you know, if a newcomer comes to that place, they wouldn't be able to so quickly understand what the local dynamics are, you know, what the social norms are, all these things. It takes a while to to understand these things. Um, And so whenever you have expert knowledge, you have a hierarchy between those who know more and those who know less. Now, here's the big challenge. Democracy is all about equalizing access to political decision-making. We want um, everyone to be part of the processes through which the laws are made. Everyone should be able to participate in public discourse and so on. But then on certain things where we require expert knowledge, There is really a difference between someone who studied these things for years and someone who's just, just thinks that they also know something about it, but they really don't. And I want to take the reality of that epistemic difference seriously and yet find a way of integrating these forms of knowledge into democratic decision-making. And and that I think is is really a challenge, but it's one where the tension will always be there, but epistemic communities and the broader democratic public together can manage these tensions. And that's why I call it a partnership model, where there are different responsibilities, both for the general public vis-a-vis the expert communities, but also for the expert communities. And one, one key example of such a responsibility is that they both together have a responsibility for how expert knowledge can be translated in ways that make make it sort of accessible for public discourse. So then you get to, to practices such as science communication, the science policy interface, and managing these things responsibly, keeping in mind both the, the, the egalitarian ethos of democracy and the reality of knowledge differences. That is really a challenge, but there are also models out there where, where this actually happens. Um, and, If people do it responsibly, it it can happen. I think it's ultimately a matter of of building trust between the different parties. And it's also, it's a a moral task because it's a task where people really need to um, stick to certain standards of integrity, um, not overstep their roles and so on. Um, And it would be very difficult or maybe impossible to enforce this from the outside by saying, oh, you know, we make you accountable. It's really, it's, it's a moral matter that requires a certain ethos on the part of the experts but also on the part of the general political community
0: good can i uh, just to, to to raise sort of one of the the ways in which um uh this this idea is difficult or is challenging um can you say a little bit about um so how would you address uh somebody who might say the following um yeah the partnership model sounds good when um, there isn't um a lot of public contestation m- m- many of it um uh sort of motivated b- by um malevolent actors uh when, but the contestation is over who the experts are um yeah. <laughs> Can can you say a little bit about how you might address that?
1: Yeah, no, it's it's actually noteworthy that there are many areas where something like that partnership. um, I mean, people may not use this term, but but similar social practices are actually taking place on a kind of everyday level, outside of the focus of um, public discourse, uh, street construction, all all kinds of, of social practices, as long as they don't become politically controversial. When you have big controversies, what sometimes happens is that the groups of experts are also divided and it you, you can have different scenarios there. You can have scenarios where, as, as we talked about earlier, the evidence ha- has not yet been consolidated into a clear picture and there can be genuine good faith disagreement among the expert community. And and that can then be picked up by different political actors who maybe have different interests tied to it. Um, And then they might all have their own experts, as it were. Um, And uh, another scenario is that there is actually an expert consensus, but because of material interests, certain um, societal actors try to install pseudo-experts as a counterparty. And then from the outside, how can you tell what's really going on? And how can a lay person who's confronted with two political parties, let's say, and each of them has certain people um, whom they cite as the experts who p- support their position, how can citizens decide? And I think those this is something very difficult because of the temporal dynamic of knowledge and because often it's so difficult from the outside to see what's going on. And I think there are certain things that we can do. I mean, we can ban certain practices that are obviously harmful. So so one example would be that sometimes in the past you had constellations where um, university professors would be paid by companies to put their names on studies hmm. um, that the companies had done and the, the professors had not been involved in, but just to lend credibility Uh, to these studies by having the names of of, of university professors on them. This is obviously something where we can and should say, sorry, that this is just not a legitimate use of your position as an expert. And it's actually incompatible with the role that you as an expert should play in society. So so there are ways of um, banning extremely bad practices uh, that are obviously epistemically harmful. But I fear that... There are also many constellations where it's, it's really difficult to um, do something in terms of regulation. I think sometimes you can really appeal to the ethos of the academic community, but but here's the thing: academic communities tend towards homogeneity in a way that can also be internally harmful because right. they need the dissenters. They not not the flat earthers, maybe because I mean this is a case where the evidence is really too strong. But in many other areas. It's a very healthy thing for an epistemic community to have some people who say, oh, you know, you all think this, but maybe there is another explanation. Let's do an experiment just to see what happens. So so that is something that needs to stay with us um, in order to challenge and thereby improve the knowledge we have. But that then can, of course, be politicized in all kinds of ways that are really problematic. So I think you need to look case by case. And it's very much a question of, role, responsibility, and and sort of the ethos of the academic community, how you deal with these difficult cases.
0: Great, great. Um, So let's look at the third, then, sort of engine, mechanism, sort of piece of architecture, Um, the epistemic contributions uh, of public deliberation. Now, this is a, a complex topic. Almost every democratic theorist working today at makes some role puts, puts puts deliberation in in their story at some point more or less centrally um but maybe we can start with um sort of a discussion that you have uh, in the book um of uh, a view that that's got a funny name lotocracy um uh which is the the view that uh, we ought to use uh, elections less frequently and use um, lotteries uh, um, um, more um, more regularly, uh, as Aristotle suggested. Um, so maybe we could start with with the way that you uh, engage with the, the the lotocrats and then talk about the connection you see between epistemically apt public deliberation
1: and and social justice. Yes, lotocracy is very fashionable these days, and there are also real life. experiences Experiments going on where yep. randomly elected citizens gather and uh, discuss certain issues. For example, in France, there was a big, big uh, citizen assembly on on climate policy, and I I find it fascinating. And I, I'm sort of a critical friend in the sense that I think there there is something very important going on here, and yet I also see problems. So, a, what's the important thing that's going on? What the lotocrats want to do is to give normal people a chance to participate in public deliberations, and that happens very often in reaction to the observation, which is unfortunately true, that public discourse is distorted in many, many ways. the more money you have, the better you can run for office or even just you know, make your voice heard in public discourse. You can, for example, buy advertisement space if, if that's what you want to do. Um, but there are also all these other lines of difference. So male, female, different ethnic backgrounds, migrant status, um, class, all these things play a role for who gets heard and who doesn't get heard in public discourse. And just to add... Um, One thing that's very striking in in many Western democracies is that there is a huge mismatch in terms of college educated versus not college educated um, members of parliament. So if you look at the percentage of college educated people in the population and then you look at elected politicians, you have far too many college educated people compared to people working in other kinds of jobs Um, like the plumbers, the the nurses, um, all these people you find them very rarely in parliament and and that's one of these pieces of evidence where you really think oh yeah why don't we use lotocracy so that all these people really can get a voice right now the 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 challenge is that you can have these events and you know, you need to have good moderators and so on and there's a whole industry meanwhile of people who are working in you know running these kind of things um but if the rest of uh, public discourse doesn't function well. What's the point of assembling these people and then having them discuss things and coming up with a final report, if this then doesn't get disseminated and discussed more broadly. And I mean, this idea that um, we could have everyone involved in in, in a lot of credit assembly at some point in their lifetime, I think that's just not where we, where we are. And we, need to focus also on making the rest of the political system and the, the the ways in which public discourse is organized and the ways in which people get into parliament we need to also work on these things um and i mean it, it's it's really sad but so far of all these nice lotocratic experiments from what i know hardly anything has been picked up by parliamentary policy and and really turn into law or something like that so It just doesn't work at this point. Um, Maybe we should keep trying, but we should also try to make the political systems that we have more just so that they really work for everyone. And that is also the connection that you mentioned to social justice. Um, Because um, if the socioeconomic differences in our societies get larger and larger, then it becomes all the more difficult to make public discourse and democratic policies function for everyone. And there are all kinds of, again, pieces of empirical research that I'm trying to pull together here about um, the psychology of speech between people of unequal status or uh, equality of opportunity and as it relates to overall social inequality. And the argument that I try to build based on, on, on these different findings is that, look, if you want democracy to function well epistemically speaking you need to reduce socioeconomic inequality and create more social justice because the kind of class societies that many of the western democracies are developing into how can they offer equal opportunities for political participation if people's lives are so different and economically speaking, some have so much more power than others. It's just unrealistic to think that they could then um, be citizens on a Sunday, as it were, when they are really underlings and feudal lords during the week when they are at work. And that's why I think um, we need to have a more holistic approach here and really think about uh, social justice also as something that influences the functioning of our democratic systems.
0: That's great. Um- So Lisa, you've been very generous with your time. I want to make sure that we um, get to talk about uh, some of uh, some of the action that goes on uh, at the end of the book. Um, And and one of the things that you pick up explicitly at the book's end is um, a kind of thread that runs throughout. Um, more or less explicitly. Um, It's an engagement with a kind of economics driven of sort of, you know, hard-nosed realism about democracy. Um, Citizen knowledge ends with a direct engagement with that style of work. Um, can you tell, that sees everything in the in, in in the sort of the the terms of the economic market? Um, can you tell us a little bit about the the sort of um, more direct uh, engagement that that with with that kind of view that occurs uh, at the end of the
1: book? Yes, yeah, so, so I mean, um, many of these realists are actually also very pessimistic about the future of democracy, and some of them then. Uh, move into epistocratic waters because they don't think that um, it's possible to have well-functioning um, democracy. And and one of the one of the arguments is actually that uh, in markets people have incentives to become well-informed because if they don't. They will suffer. whereas in politics because there are so many of us in, in large-scale societies. Um, the the incentives to get well-informed are sort of diluted, and you can free ride on others being um, informed, and then just vote according to your emotions, your your sense of identity. You don't have to do the extra work of double-checking whether certain statements are right and so on. So 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 there is this this assumption that because people are driven by their own interests, democracy actually really has a hard time. Now, um, lots of things that one could say about this, but let me just focus on one. I think, um, well, first of all, I think normatively speaking, we really should stand behind democracy, but we should be realistic about what makes it function better or worse. And I think um, one very direct response to these um, realists is to say, well, if you think that all these market uh, mechanisms and outcomes make democracy functional as well, then we need to reduce the influence of markets and market thinking. Um, and I, I mean, maybe I'm just you know, a naive optimist by nature. I don't <laughs> know. Um, I, I, I think um, it's not impossible to also imagine a system where democracy is really first and democracy determines what the economic system should look like. And if there are these effects that, you know, people, people tend to free ride um, on the knowledge of others, then we need to be realistic about it and we need to ask, OK, but, but you know, what, what can we do to deal with this better? And one possible answer here is, well, what about all the intermediate institutions that can help people make sense of politics without huge epistemic burdens, without having to spend all their evenings uh, reading up on certain things, and yet help them be responsible voters. So unions, for example, can play a very important role for not only fighting for the interests of workers, but also informing um, citizens about certain you know, industrial relations issues and in, 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 that are going on in politics, uh, of foreign, foreign trade issues. If I am a citizen who doesn't have a lot of time and is actually not willing to, um, you know, spend all my evenings uh, doing research, maybe I'm willing to just see, okay, who's a well-informed union leader, whose judgment I can trust on these things. So I think we need to understand all these epistemic processes also much more in a a group-based way, because... As a matter of fact, people do pick up a lot of information and knowledge from others. So the question is, how can these processes be made to function well for democracy? And it's actually really interesting that a lot of this market thinking is, it's its very individualistic. And there's the assumption that it's always the individual that carries the epistemic responsibility. But I think here psychology really tells us, no, that, that's not how it works. And, and there are lots of reasons to think that we are cruel animals. So that's what we need to be realistic about. But then we need to build our democratic institutions in ways that allow it, them to function well, given that we are crude animals. And, and that's the kind of realism where we keep the democratic values, the sort of the democratic goal in mind. And then we try to see, OK, what are the real life um, mechanisms how can they be improved and what kinds of institutions can we build without giving up the democratic values
0: it's great let me ask one sort of quick follow up you know one of the things just on picking up on your point about how individualistic some of these um some of these sort of skeptical uh arguments are um you know it also has strict, you know, struck me um that a lot of these um these programs that uh, either focus on voter ignorance or irrationality, or the you know the the, the sort of rational irrationality literature, um, you know, it's individualistic in this uh, in this other sense. I think maybe uh, we'll see if you agree. In that, a lot of the data that's brought um, in defense of the conclusion that ordinary citizens again taken as individuals don't have can't acquire the right information can't you know it's unrealistic to expect them to be motivated to acquire the right information so on and so forth a lot of these um sort of empirically sounding uh, uh arguments also are individualistic in that they understand the bits of You know, they understand knowledge individualistically in the following sense. You know, a lot of these arguments run on, you know, the data from surveys that just sort of ask people, you know, what are the three branches of government? You know, they they ask them like sort of phone book kinds of questions, um, discover that, you know, alarming percentage of the citizens in a given country can't answer these sort of little tidbit of information, you know, can't give you these little tidbits of information about the political circumstances under which they live. And then that's taken as evidence that they must, um, the citizens must also therefore lack information of any more holistic kind. Do you see that as, that strikes me as a as a, a sort of um, uh, insufficiently warranted set of inferences from the inability to answer these sort of textbook questions that are very atomistic to the broader conclusion that citizens are sort of in some more holistic sense, politically incompetent.
1: Does that strike you as an error as well? Yes, I agree. And let let me make two points on this. The first is I think um, lots of these questions are actually stuff where even very, you know, highly educated, well-informed, politically interested people would actually spontaneously say, oh, let me look this up because it's the kind of knowledge that you can immediately Google, but that you don't need to have in, in, ready in your in your mind all the time, and I think in a way we haven't yet made the shift from what was for centuries humanity situation that knowledge is difficult to access, to a situation where many forms of knowledge are easy to access. But what matters is that you know how to find them in reliable ways, and where you need to be able to place all this Googleable knowledge into broader Ways of understanding a political system or a social situation. So, so I think these these surveys where you ask people little bits and pieces of knowledge are very much still in, in the old paradigm of oh, we need to store all the knowledge in in people's heads, which was you know already not true since we have <laughs> book print and so on. Um, but with the internet, of course, it has become even you know more radical that you know there are lots of things that we don't need to know by heart, but we need to be able to navigate. The instruments of knowledge, like the internet and so on, in the right way. And we need to have a deeper background understanding for placing the bits and pieces. And then, very quickly, as, as a second um, related point, I think this survey driven literature um, is also a reflection of the overemphasis in the academic world and maybe in our culture, more broadly speaking, of quantitative over qualitative um, research. Yeah. And 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 I I think I mean it, it, when when Trump got elected it was very interesting there was a bit of a kind of self-critical moment in, in social uh, research because some of the very few scholars that had predicted or um, or were at least not surprised by Trump's um, victory um, was for example Arlie Hochschild who had done imp- um, qualitative work in a certain rural or yeah um, right wing Areas with lots of writing voters, where she actually sat down and talked to people, lived with us them for a certain period, and really tried to understand their mentality from the inside out. Whereas in in lots of the surveys, people had also just um, responded uh, apparently in, in with with um social desirability bias in the sense that they they said what they thought was expected from them. Right. So I think we need far more qualitative research in order to anchor social scientific knowledge in the real world out there. And then once we have a good grip on things, we can use quantitative research to to, to confirm certain hypotheses or to to nuance certain pictures. But I think if what we want to understand is the world out there and not just some data set, qualitative needs to come first to anchor the data and the concepts on which the data are based in the social reality. And only then does it make sense to do quantitative studies.
0: Well, that all sounds right to me for what it's worth. Well, Lisa, um, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining me on on New Books in Philosophy. It's really been a great pleasure uh, to, to talk about your you new so book um and um you know there's a lot in, which i should just alert our readers there's a lot in the book that we a lot of details a lot of uh interesting maneuvers a lot of uh very cool argumentation that uh, that we didn't get to discuss uh so I, I i recommend uh to anybody listening to to go out and check out the book um uh and just to remind our listeners um Uh, Well, firstly, to thank them for joining us for our discussion. Um, I've been talking to Lisa Herzog. Uh, She is the author of a new book with Oxford University Press. It is titled Citizen Knowledge. Uh, Thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy, and bye for now.